<coughs> I want to uh, divide my comments into two parts. So first, let's put Hinduism aside. So at least we can relax. Okay? Yeah, relax, there's no, no, no okay. We'll, we'll talk about grand narrative. What is a grand narrative? And does a nation need a grand narrative? What are examples of grand narratives that different nations have? And how do these grand narratives come about? Who makes one? What is its use? What happens if it breaks down? So we should know that before we talk about Hinduism, whether it's relevant or not. Because you could have many kinds of grand narratives. <clears throat> so grand narrative is basically uh, the overall story of who we are. Uh, it may be partly true and partly fantasy. Most countries, grand narratives include a lot of exaggeration, you know, uh, some mythology, fiction, some outright lies also, some wishful thinking, but some, a, lot of, a large amount of truth also. So it's, it's a narrative of uh, our collective identity, like I have a Rajiv identity, uh, this is what I want to project, uh, but it may have a lot of uh, things that are more like advertising and promoting myself, and some truth also. Each person has individual identity, and you have identity as a department, you have an identity as a corporate business, so a nation also has identity. So this, is, this grand narrative of a nation is that kind of thing. To give you some examples, uh, United States has a grand narrative. <clears throat> the official term of who we are in America, whether this may sound strange to you, but there is a term called American exceptionalism. Okay, how many of you have heard of that term? American exceptionalism, okay, one or two. So if you look up American exceptionalism, it means we, the Americans, who are the world's exceptional people. And why we are the exceptional people? What are the qualities that made us exceptional? It's a very well-defined term. In the 1800s, it was coined, and uh, the Senate passed laws and bills and referred to it, and even today, whether you are uh, Republican or Democrat, left, right, uh, you talk about what is your idea of American exceptionalism. You may have different idea of what makes us exceptional from someone else, but you have to have some idea about why we are exceptional. That's a common denominator. I wrote a 70-80 page uh, paper which was published uh, in a book called by Palgrave Macmillan, and my title was American Exceptionalism and the Myth of the Frontier. Now this idea of frontier is a very big idea in the American imagination that we are people who are always facing a frontier and we must conquer that. Because their history started when they came as settlers from England, then the frontier was 99% of America was Native Americans living there. That was the big wild frontier, scary, but also a lot of uh, riches if you could tame it, if you could capture it, adventure, you know, all the wild west, romance, all that stuff was in the frontier. So the frontier was gradually captured and so-called civilized. So there's a dichotomy between us, civilization, and them, the frontier. And that's the whole story of America. And then when the whole frontier is captured, then the frontier goes overseas. They decide now we can't be Americans unless we have some frontier to, challenge, to go after. So they, there's an invasion of Philippines for no reason. Philippines never provoked. There was no uh, threat from them, but it was decided that this will be a good place to expand our frontier. So this kind of a frontier mindset is very American. And I've written in this then, you know, Korea becomes the frontier, then Vietnam, now Iraq becomes the frontier, Afghanistan, and, and I'm actually writing a book on is, is India the next frontier, next American frontier, 
Okay, that's why I was writing all this because I wanted to see what is their lens through which they're projecting. And I found very amazingly, all this talk about human rights problems in India, same thing were used to invade Mexico, that they, are, they, are, uh, uh, they lack human rights, they ill-treat their women, uh, they don't, they're not good parents, you know, they are this, that, all kind of bad character that we will help them civilize. And you may or may not know, but uh, until some generations back, uh, California was part of Mexico, Arizona was part of Mexico, Texas was part of Mexico, a huge percentage of United States was not part of the United States. There was a war just to invade and take over, and there was no logic given other than that they are uh, sort of uh, primitive bad characters, we, they need to be invaded, this sort of thing. So there's a grand narrative. So this is an expansionist grand narrative. Then, you know, Arabs have a grand narrative based on Islam. They have a grand narrative of uh, their place in the world and uh, their, uh, their uh, destiny and what they are supposed to do to expand their share of, uh, of earth, you know. Uh, so that, that there's a grand narrative like that. The Chinese have a grand narrative. So there's also, you know, if you look at China, they have a grand narrative about who they are, their past. And uh, according to that narrative, they're teaching everybody. Uh, everyone has to be Chinese means you have to understand that. There's a Japanese grand narrative. The French have a narrative on uh, the great civilization uh, of France. They are the ones who are the successors of the Renaissance and how they are different than the Germans and different than the British. You better not confuse a Frenchman to be same as those others because they don't like it. And British have this narrative that they started democracy and the empire and they brought civilization to the world and the English language and royal family, all of that is their narrative. So the narratives exist. Um, Somehow Indians have a kind of uh, allergic reaction to discussing the grand narrative. In other countries, you can talk, you, it is talked about and it is discussed very openly. Uh, when I launched one book in uh, India International Center three years ago, and I was talking about the Indian grand narrative, the big attack from the other speakers was, how dare you give us a narrative? I said, I'm not giving you any narrative. How dare you say we need one? Who cares we, whether we need one? It's sort of like, almost like I've touched a raw nerve. So I realized I better start talking more about it. You know? <laughs> because that's like the psycho, psychologist saying, okay, you have said, ouch, so there's something there. You know, I got to uncover that. <laughs> so Indians have this kind of a thing. Now, narratives are not stable. Narratives get broken and new narrative is formed. So there's an equilibrium of voices which is kind of the consensus, that's the grand narrative. And then something happens, it falls apart. Maybe the nation will break. Maybe a new narrative will be constituted. So many times this happens in the long life of a, a nation. Right now, for, you can see the French grand narrative has, is being challenged with recent events. French grand narrative is being challenged because French have been very liberal and open in terms among the, at least relative to other Europeans in terms of diversity and pluralism, and they're very proud of, uh, you know, accepting all sorts of things. But now the limits to what they can accept are being questioned and challenged. So the question remains, what will be the future grand narrative of France? Will they be able to assimilate and digest this force that is challenging it and turn them into French? Domestic, it's called domestication, like you domesticate wild animals or uh, plants. You know, will they domesticate this force and make it French? Or will this force take over? 
Or will a new equilibrium be created, which we don't know what it will be? Or will there even be a France? You don't know, because the challenge is very hard. Now, such challenges have always happened, but now there is something different. The different thing is that, you know, there is a foreign outside France headquarters or nexus from where this challenging narrative is being projected. It's not something within France. If, for instance, the, the people who are wanting a kind of a different uh, status of Islam in France were not connected with people in Iraq or somewhere else, uh, uh, Syria or wherever, then, you know, it would be a domestic problem. And then it would be easier for them to reconcile, figure out, negotiate, get, make everybody happy, and everybody life would go on. But to negotiate with the opponent, uh, the French would have to really negotiate with people who are sitting in another country. And that's not an easy thing to do. When the challenge to your grand narrative comes from a headquarters elsewhere, it's a whole different thing. And that is the global era. The reality of the global era is that every nation is, has got some links with others elsewhere. So the narratives are also in uh, competition on a global scale. You are being threatened, undermined, challenged by narratives based somewhere else. You don't have any control over them. You can't sit at, at, at the same table and talk to them and work it out. So the grand narrative issue becoming more complex. Now India, now I'll talk about India. The Indian grand narrative is, there are multiple narratives depending on who you talk to. So there is this, you know, there is this Hinduism grand narrative. There is, and that also is questionable, what is Hinduism, you know, whose idea of Hinduism? Also you can discuss. Then there is, there, there are people who see that uh, British came and created this grand narrative of we are civilizing you, a very anglicized Macaulay kind of grand narrative that they wanted to have it with India. And then the uh, movement that wanted to throw those out, some felt that we should go back to the Mughal era, that was the ideal narrative for us, where Mughals kept everybody happy. So there is that kind of a narrative. Then there is this narrative which says that economic development, forget identity, forget history, forget culture, but just you know have high GDP growth rate, and uh, you know material prosperity is the grand narrative. So there are competing narratives, grand narratives that are in India. Now the the now I'll come to uh, uh, my topic, uh, which is Hinduism. The situation I see about India's grand narrative is that what we lack a public consensus of uh, enough people or almost enough people. There'll always be some dissidents, dissenting voices. But what India doesn't have is a clearly stated, clearly articulated grand narrative which everybody can proudly state, such that most people, with rare exceptions, will say, yes, that's who I am, that's the country I belong to. Uh, there is a lot of uh, concern, if I say it, maybe I'll get in trouble. If I say it, it's not politically correct. People will accuse me, they will brand me. Uh, privately, but publicly, please don't quote me, like that kind of a talk. Okay, so there is a, there is that kind of a anxiety. I think Indians have a grand narrative anxiety, kind of, or maybe some kind of a grand narrative complex that says maybe, you know, there's something wrong with it. Because, uh, and then there is the uh, people from postmodern studies, postmodernist theorists, who are saying that all grand narratives are inherently violent. And that's based on the experience of uh, 
what happened in Europe, that grand narratives tend to oppress, colonize, make people into slaves. So the very strong, chauvinistic, hyper-masculine kind of grand narrative has that problem. But I would contend that maybe that's not necessarily the case with every grand narrative. That may be the case with some grand narratives, but we certainly need a unity, some kind of a sense of who we are. The opposite of having a grand narrative would be fragmentation. Fragmentation meaning that uh, there's a lot of vote banks, a lot of identity politics. Everybody's got their own micro, micro grand narrative, micro narrative rather than grand narrative, a sort of tiny narrative. And these narratives are fighting each other. Because uh, to get votes from a vote bank, if I am the person who wants to make my career from a certain community, I have to convince them that you have been oppressed, uh, you are the victims of other Indians, and I have to create a history which fits that. I have to create a history, I have to hire historians, and I have to say, okay, why don't you pump out some history and all that, which will show the oppression of these people by others, because the more oppressed, the more victim they are feeling the more they'll need me because I'm the savior. So this business of identity politics depends on creating conflicting narratives. So in India, we have entered the age of identity politics and vote banking. That's reality. Uh, and I think that has to do with the parliamentary system because in a parliamentary system, uh, you know, uh, you don't elect the government directly. You elect your member of parliament and then these 500 odd people collectively vote for the government. Whereas in the, you could have other kinds of democracies that exist where you directly vote for a government and then the fragmentation of the parliament is not a material factor. You can still have a stable government even though you have a very diverse parliament. But given we have this constitution and uh, uh, therefore it encourages vote bank politics and vote bank politics requires, uh, you know, kind of fragmented historical narratives. And so there's a whole cottage industry of historians and scholars who are constantly supplying and feeding these fragmented, conflicting narratives and saying one kind of group versus another going on, which you all are very familiar with. So, I, I, so the question is, um, uh, if the fragmentation is bad, then also the very homogeneous narrative is also bad. Homogeneous narrative would have no room for diversity, uh, would have no room for uh, people do, having their own way. Uh, would have no room for uh, change and uh, dissent and argument. So it would be a very totalitarian kind of state, like a communist state or some kind of a totalitarian state. And that is, of course, undesirable and would never work. People would never accept it. So both those extremes are undesirable. The extreme where there is one uh, homogeneous narrative for everybody forced on you is not desirable, won't work. And the other extreme where there's no narr grand narrative, nothing holding us together, except very practical reality that we, we get the same smartphones and we have plus nine one uniting us and uh, things like that. Uh, you know, so those are very feeble. They're not very robust things. And we have cricket team and whatnot. Sometimes they're doing well also. So um, what is there in the middle? So what is there in the middle? So the moment you use the word Hindu, then, you know, people already have some very strong ideas one way or the other and it tends to polarize. So let me, uh, let me sort of put that aside for a little more time. But I will describe what later, I'll tell you later on I will call this Hindu, but I'm not calling it yet, okay? Because I want you to understand it with an open mind. So in this book, uh, Indra's Net, I described a concept called open architecture. Open architecture, like a network. 
a network like the internet where there's lots of players. They relate to each other. They leave each other alone. You can set up your own and it has nothing to do with me and you can be on your own creating your own content. I can be creating my own content. But there are certain rules like we can't bring down the each other. There are certain rules of good citizenship in the, net, in the, in the network that you cannot undermine the others. You cannot uh, uh, sabotage. You can. So long as I respect your right to be different, I have a right to be how I am. So long as uh, I, 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 I respect that you are not like me and I'm not trying to convert you to be like me, I have no interest to convert you. You are worshipping the way you worship and you are, your culture is like it is, your language is like it is. And I leave you alone and you are ha I'm happy with that. But I want the same in, respect, in return. I call this uh, the principle of mutual respect. Mutual respect. And in the Jaipur Literary Festival, uh, I was on the final debate. They have a huge debate on the last uh, day, about 8,000, 10,000 people there. And so there was one Suhail Seth. He's this very oh, oh, guy in a guy. Huh, yeah, you know him. So I had a little nice uh, debate, uh, uh, kind of encounter with him. Uh, uh, you should watch that video. So uh, he says, Aapki baat, one thing I will want to correct you is that your idea of uh, mutual respect is good idea, but I don't want it to be mutual. I want that. Why should it be mutual? Mutual shows that I want his respect. Why do I need his respect? It should be unconditional. So that's a very common uh, naive view I hear a lot. Uh, then I told him, uh, if you are giving unconditional respect, you would have to respect Bin Laden, you would have to respect Hitler, you would have to respect those who don't respect others. So the only condition I have for offering you respect is that you must offer the same respect to others and therefore I'm going to respect you. If you don't offer the respect to others, I will not offer you my respect. That is So, so he kind of accepted that. Uh, this idea of mutual respect I've uh, utilized and it's matured over a long, long time. Um, after September 11, 2001, when there was all this uh, in New York and Washington, all these attacks and so on, uh, the Pakistani-American community was very shaken up because there's a lot of unfortunate incidents, you know, people were attacking uh, Muslims and they were attacking Sikhs just because they had turban. There were these things happening in America. People got crazy. So there was a bye-bye moment uh, between Pakistanis and Indians. So I was in Dallas, uh, you know, giving my lecture tour. And then I was invited to a radio station run by a Pakistani. And uh, I went to the radio station and I gave my talk on the importance of mutual respect. They, they asked me, what is your philosophy in the light of 9-11 for American society? I said, in my tradition, we have mutual respect. You can worship your way, you can have your deity, you can not worship at all. You know, the point is I respect that as long as you respect me for what I'm doing. So everybody, there was a talk show. So one lady who later I was told was a very prominent Pakistani activist. So she called and uh, he said, Rajiv Bhai, welcome to Dallas. I'm so happy to hear your mutual respect. On behalf of the Pakistani community, I want to tell you, we also believe in mutual respect, and this is a great principle. So I said, wonderful, I'm so happy to hear you say that, but let me tell you what my tradition is, and then you know, you know that is what you're respecting. So my tradition allows me to worship images, if I want to. 
my tradition says we can also worship the supreme divine as feminine as goddess my tradition also has reincarnation so i'm glad you respect all that she quickly hung up <laughs> yeah yeah you see sometimes this mutual respect can be a sham unless you tell the person this is what is specific now i have no problem respecting you whatever it is i am i'm i don't want to hang up i'll say fine you you do it this way that way it's fine with me but i do it my way are you willing to respect me also is it reciprocal so this is where this is how the I, the principle of mutual respect also allows you if you are sure that you can live up to that standard then you can demand the other person also and you'll find that it will really uh, many people have not really thought through this themselves they have not thought through this from for themselves because the principle of mutual respect means if i respect you and you reciprocate and say okay you also respect me then why do you need to convert me i don't need to convert you you're happy i'm you i'm happy with the way you are why do you have a problem with me what's wrong why why can't you just leave me alone so if you can't leave me alone then i've caught you that you are not able to live up to the mutual respect criteria so it's a nice subtle way to kind of catch them if they are playing this hypocrisy game so this is sort of uh, uh my building block is open architecture um i don't think that um, the hinduism as i understand it uh, is necessarily requiring you to have a personal god or a deity so when people say they're doing uh, like there is this theory of uh, rasa art and the aesthetics uh, which says secular so when you ask them what is secular they are saying there is no personal god involved however there is transcendence beyond the ego so there is a transcendence above the ego the, the there is a state of consciousness they acknowledge where it is not this normal small ego present but a kind of a consciousness is awakened to a higher expansive state but there is no presence of a god now you can call it anything you want but that's wonderful i mean there is nothing that says that uh in a, in an exo- in a higher state of consciousness as a result of meditation you have to see a deity x or a y a particular deity or any deity at all so my idea has enough bandwidth that it accommodates that or you could be a person who says there is no transcendent state with deity without deity there is no transcendent state uh, we are this this is the normal state this is the ultimate state when we are dead we are dead finished and there is nothing else beyond it and that's also fine so the 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 what i call the open architecture is sufficiently fluid sufficiently flexible uh that that uh, it accommodates uh, wide diversity the problem comes from the other side some members from the, some of the faiths or some of the traditions from the other side may not want to respect this kind of an idea it's too scary it's too broad it's too open yeah it's too uh, flexible and they would like to have something defined contained one truth one god one this that you know so the problem isn't that i am uh, limited and narrow although i may be accused of it and branded that way because people are not able to handle this the point is i'm i'm willing to offer in the spirit of mutual respect i and in the under the principle of open architecture i'm willing to accommodate whosoever is a, wants to be a member as long as they are offering the same to us so this is i think uh, a, a fair Uh, proposition and you can call it what you want to i happen to call it hinduism because uh, hinduism is a modern name but for a tradition which is very old so if you change your name doesn't mean that you didn't exist before 
so the argument or you know this argument that hinduism didn't the name didn't exist is useless silly it's, it is irrelevant because we are not arguing how you name something we are arguing whether that entity existed and and as long as that entity has existed for a very very long time and has had this open architecture quality you know so the term uh, indra's net i used uh, for the title of this new, latest book uh, indra's net is a is a metaphor used in buddhism quite a lot uh, indra's net uh, and and uh, it from buddhism the westerners have t brought it into uh, many western uh, scientific models and social models it's a, it means that uh, interdependency uh, interdependency a network of interdependencies so people in quantum physics talk about the cosmos is a in, is indra's net that's a holog or that's a kind of metaphor that's been used there are some social theories and so on ecosystem kind of theories that use the idea of indra's net and most of the time when you uh, ask people where does this uh, what is indra's net as a metaphor they'll say it's a buddhist concept so i started doing research because i know indra is a vedic deity so i started doing research and i found out that the avatamsak sutra which is a buddhist sutra uh, is where this uh, indra's net is referenced and from and that's a uh, it's been translated into chinese and from china it went to japan and various places and so that's how the buddhist idea of indra's net has spread but i wanted to know what does that sutra have to say the buddhist people what do they have to say the uh, what are they referring to and in that it's a sanskrit text translated in that it refers to the vedak vedic uh, vedic reference where it is where somebody asks what is the nature of all reality and the answer is that uh, there is a net that indra has made of jewels infinite net of jewels in all directions and these jewels are such that when you look at any one jewel it will give you a reflection of all the other jewels so each jewel is a reflection of all the other jewels which means that each of you is contains a reflection of all the others each particle each little you know fly each flower the clouds everything that exists basically contains uh, some in some sense it contains everything else in the cosmos the whole cosmos is create is contained in every little part of it this kind of an idea so this is a this is a metaphor of what is reality so the whole idea of this open architecture the interdependency the flexibility is contained in that tradition so this is this is how old this kind of metaphor goes and right now it is quoted in social theory and so on as a sort of very late new current kind of modern idea postmodern idea of how diversity can coexist so this is my reason for using the term hinduism which is a new term for a very old system so with that i'll stop and uh, look forward to some comments and then we'll continue the discussion thank you